Aloha, everyone. My name is Coyote, and I'm a science teacher and a member of the Hawaii Science Teachers Association. This podcast highlights educators, scientists, and community members who are doing awesome things in science throughout our islands. Aloha and welcome to the Science Hawaii podcast, your station for all things science and education in Hawaii, brought to you by the Hawaii Science Teachers Association. Welcome to our first episode with Rick Jones, who will finally reveal to us the answer to the age-old question, why is science so boring? Thank you for joining us, Rick. Uh, it's really great to be here, and I think this is a great idea to get uh, the community of uh, knowledgeable what's going on in science in, in Hawaii. So um, just to give you a little bit of a background, my name is Rick Jones. I am currently a professor of science education and director of the Veterans Empowered Through STEM program at the University of Oahu out in lovely Kapolei. Uh, my journey actually started in public schools in Hawaii on the island of Kauai back in the late 80s, 80s nine actually and I taught at Kauai High School and Intermediate uh, life science and health and earth science and that was was a great experience for me um, unfortunately I was unable to stay for very long and I and I taught in Montana for 20 years I taught middle school and high school I taught all sciences as a teacher, you get to do things that mere mortals don't even really dream about. And so I was selected to go to Antarctica. I was selected to be a teacher at sea. I got to be an Albert Einstein fellow. I got to do all kinds of things that allowed me to, what they say, put um, practice and policy together. And so I was actually getting to do science as a science teacher, which is really unusual. And uh, in 2010, I... Uh, I graduated from high school, I guess is a way to put it, and I was able to utilize my doctorate, and I moved to the University of Hawaii, and I've been an advocate for engaging science and meaningful science, and what I like to call it, science is a verb, for my students for the last 10 years. I've always wanted to visit Antarctica, personally, as well as Montana. I've never been to Montana either. Well, it's almost um, the same in the middle of the winter. <laughs> so when, to just kind of as an anecdotal story, when I left to go to Antarctica, it was right before Thanksgiving. And it was about uh, 18 degrees when I left Billings. Uh, and I got to uh, McMurdo a couple days after Thanksgiving. It was a balmy 38 degrees. It was warmer in Antarctica than it had been in Montana when I left. And that was, it was, it was remarkable, actually. I was able to wear shorts and I have a couple, a picture of myself uh, there <laughs> wearing shorts and everybody else was in their winter clothes because it was warmer for me than being back home. Uh, and then I journeyed to the South Pole and the South Pole was considerably cooler. We did have record high while I was there on Christmas Day. It was nine degrees Fahrenheit. And people were talking about, oh my gosh, this climate change. And this is in 2000. This is a long 20 years ago. <laughs> so, you know, we were aware that there was a change even then. It, it was a program at that time called Teachers Experiencing Antarctica. Uh, they have a, a similar program now called 
polar trek. And I would encourage any teacher who wants to actually be on the front lines of science to take advantage of those opportunities that you have, because not very many people get a chance to go to Antarctica or to Greenland or into the Arctic. And through Polar Trek, you have those opportunities. So it's for a teacher, particularly a teacher in an area like uh, urban Honolulu, it's a wonderful chance for you to be able to make science really come alive for your students because you, as a teacher in one of those environments, you are going to be sending blog reports back and pictures and doing video and might even be doing um, podcasts from the ice. It's really, really quite a remarkable experience for your students and the community too, as well as yourself. Yeah. And even though they didn't get to go along with you, they get to experience kind of what you experience through pictures and also through data. And that makes it so engaging, which leads me to my question is, why is science so boring for so many students? Uh, that's a great question. And the, the fact is that we teach it poorly in general. Uh, we teach it as a body of knowledge, as facts, as nouns. It's cold. I've sat through classes of colleagues even when I taught in the, in the public school system and in high school and middle school and, and even now in college where folks know content, uh, but their content is based on what they read out of a book or research that was done sometime in the past. And it's really not relevant to students. What they really need is an opportunity to be engaged with the data, collect their own data. And it can be something as simple as having a weather station in your classroom, if you're a kindergarten teacher, just have the kids go outside. Oh, it's sunny today, miss. You know, or, oh, look, the clouds are puffy. And then you can talk about it and they can write it down on a big board in the classroom and they can keep their own data and you can get them curious and they can ask. They're going to ask why. And what happens, I think, too much in science, um, particularly in middle school and high school, is that we're so driven by a test that we lose sight of the engagement, the, the process, that verb. Science is a way of doing things and looking at things, and that's not typically how it's taught. And that's the big, big loss. And so if kids get to engage with activities that are minds-on, relevant, and basically relatable to their own lives, then they're much more likely to want to move forward in science and not find it to be just an hour of day that they, or 90 minutes every other day that they have to endure. Yeah, so often I feel stressed and I have anxiety about those upcoming uh, high stakes tests that my students take, the biology end of course exam is the big one, sure. um, or the AP environmental science exam. And I get so focused on they need to know the stuff. And sometimes I forget that they need to experience the science. And so I think what you're saying is so critical and so important. Um, I'm curious, like, what could a teacher do, do you think, who has been taught the old-fashioned way and has been teaching the old-fashioned way? What's the first couple steps that they could take well, to make their science more authentic and engaged? So the first, this, that's a great question. And, and I always encourage my students, because I'm teaching pre-service teachers primarily at this time, is that, you know, um, if you're going to be in a public school system or even in a private school system, you're going to have to jump through the hoops if you want to keep your job. But that doesn't mean that you can't be an agent of change. I try to, to present the, the material in a pedagogy that's engaging for my students. 
So we actually do science based on the next gen standards or even the old hiccups three standards that they would be expected to do with, they could be expected to do with students. And I, what I try to get them to do is that in their first year that they teach, I say, look, I know that you're driven by a curriculum. You may have 375 objectives that the principal is going to check with you at the end of the year. Did you cover these and what date? And where's the initial on your little sheet? That's fine. I get that. But just check them all off <laughs> because you're going to cover them. It's not, it's not a race. What I suggest that they do is that they focus on, in their first year, only one inquiry student-centered activity. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, and it's usually palatable for most teachers and for for pre-service teachers, they're overwhelmed to begin with when they start out. But but even an old dog can be taught new tricks if they realize that the students are going to learn the process that's going to give them better scores. And so from an anecdotal standpoint, what I can do, and I actually have data buried somewhere because it's all about science's data. So I was involved with writing the uh, end of course exam. Uh, there was a team of us that wrote the end of course exam for ninth grade earth science back years and years ago on a, at a mainland school district. And there were roughly 75 freshman classes uh, throughout the district, an average of about 25 students that took this exam. And it was based on, you know, the Pearson earth science, blah, blah, blah. And there were, and I'm not kidding you, there were probably 365 objectives that were covered. And that, for a year's course, that's an objective, that's two objectives a day if you have 180 days a year. It's crazy. You can't cover that much. And the administration, they didn't get that you can't cover two objectives a day unless you're just giving them lecture. And they, they didn't care because it's all about tests. So what I, what I did, because I had the security of being tenured and I was the most senior faculty at that school, as well as the department head, I had a little leeway. And so I just covered one third of the content that was actually supposedly covered on the exam. But I taught my students how to think and how to engage with real data. And so when it came to things like rocks and minerals, I didn't have them memorize Bowen's reaction series. We actually walked around downtown and looked at the various rocks that the buildings were made of. And then we discussed what kinds of rocks they were. And we had the results of the all district end of course exam. The two-tailed T's and all the statistics showed that my students did as well as the, as the teacher who actually prep the students on questions. And it's not always about the, the, the quantity, getting through the objectives, the checks, it's the quality. And I think it, if, if, a, if a teacher could just change one of their uh, lessons, one of their units to be high quality, what they could do then is the next year try another. And then by the end of four years, they've got one really engaging inquiry, three dimensions of the NGSS lesson or unit, one for each quarter. Because once you're comfortable with one, then you realize, hey, my students did just as well. And it was focused on the, what they wanted to learn, not the exam was driven by. That said, AP is a totally different animal. If the students don't get threes, fours, and fives, the parents get irate. Mm -hmm. I've been there. I used to teach AP physics. And if my students did get, didn't get fours and fives, the parents were just freaking out. Yeah. And that, that component is a little stressful because not only is it for the parents, but you know, you want that student to have that 
college credit because that gives them a leg up once they go to college. It does. But, you know, the flip side, then I found this to be better is I moved away from AP physics because I found that I was driven by a curriculum. But I went to the local four year institution and I worked out a deal with them. And what we did was we got the students who had gone through regular conceptual physics, you know, physics one, non AP. We got it so that they could take first year would be equivalent to, to physics 151 and 152 at Manoa, at UH Manoa. Uh, we got them so that they could take that as um, a junior or a senior in high school. And what I found was real interesting is that the kids, my kids, did A, B, A and B quality work uh, in the university physics class. While AP is great and has a lot of prestige to it, I found that my students who actually physically took a college, a university level class as juniors and seniors, had more prestige, and they also had the real college experience. I like that um, you, you talked a lot about going in depth rather than just focusing on the breadth, especially if there's a test right. involved, whether it's an AP test or an end of course exam. I also like you mentioned, um, you didn't say the word inspiration explicitly, but you were talking about ways of inspiring versus just right. teaching student. And I'm curious, where do you find inspiration as a teacher, as a scientist? Where do you find your inspiration? Oh, I mean, I, I'm a geologist by original education and early profession. And I found my inspiration just by looking around outside. And then here in, um, uh, in Hawaii, I find my, obviously my inspiration is the islands and living here in paradise is fantastic. But where my inspiration in class came from was my students would bring me problems. For example, they would say, hey, you know, there's been there's been a, a, a die off of the of the fish in Lake Josephine down by the Yellowstone River. You know, that's one of my favorite places to fish. What do you, you know what 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 caused it? I'm like, well, I don't know what caused it, but we do have the equipment here at the school to go down and take water quality samples. And I said, well, let's find out because that's part of what biologists do. So. I, I literally met my students down on a Saturday at the park, River, Riverside Park down there. We went to Lake Josephine, did water samples, and we found that there was uh, outwash from some agricultural stuff. And it was what it was doing was causing a bloom of algae, which was making the, the little lake basically anoxic, and it killed everything. So the students, they wanted to know. They drove it. Another, an example here, even in Hawaii, I was working with a program from NOAA several years ago where we were working with a, it's a group now, it's called Planet Stewards, and it was geared towards the citizen science program. I worked with Dan Inouye Elementary School. It used to be Hale Kula, Kula Elementary School at uh, Schofield Barracks, and we worked with, I worked with kindergarten through fifth grade, and each of the grades had a uh, roughly a 30-gallon saltwater tank in their classroom. And the students uh, focused on what they could do to improve the reef health here in Hawaii because they had heard and had read and they had seen on TV that they were using this thing called the super sucker to remove the invasive algae from Kaneohe Bay. And the kids wanted to know, you know, what they could do. Could they run the super sucker? Well, I'm sorry. I don't think that a 10-year-old is going to get to run the super sucker. But... It inspired me to find out what also could be used to 
uh, remediate basically the, the problems with the reefs and improve reef health. I was able to cultivate, after reading several articles, I realized that here on Oahu, we raise tens of thousands of sea urchins every year, closer to, you know, like 60 or 100,000 sea urchins every year that are cultivated uh, at Sand Island, in fact, and then put out onto the reef in Kaneohe Bay to keep the invasive algae kind of suppressed. And so I worked with the, the manager of that program to get sea urchins and the kids raised sea urchins. They did science on the sea urchins. They checked pH, they checked temperature, they checked all kinds of different things on the water. And so the kids actually had ownership and we learned a lot of science. They learned an awful lot of science. And so the first, our first attempt at raising sea urchins was, well, it was a great learning lesson because it was total failure. But the second time that we did it in the spring semester, everything worked really well. The kids had it under control. The school figured it all out. And in, it, and in May, when the semester was coming to an end, the teachers and the parents and some of the kids, they went actually down to Waikiki off of the aquarium and they were able to plant about 400 uh, sea urchins that they had able had we, we had a, started with about a thousand and we ended up with about 400 which is pretty good but but the kids really got to see that even what they were doing in the classroom could have an impact on the planet and on their own island and that really made it relevant for them and but they were the ones that inspired me it wasn't I mean I had these great ideas like oh well you know you can you know get rid of plastic bags and you could have a campaign at the px to only do, you know, to have the kids make t-shirt bags and it'll be great. And they're like, no, that's not what we want to do. They didn't want my ideas, which was <laughs> kind of inspiring. Yeah, that is very inspiring. I mean, I, I still would have been cool to take charge of that super sucker, but, you know, using nature to do its thing is pretty cool too, so. Alrighty, that is the sign that it is time for our rapid fire round where I ask you random questions for apparently no reason. Okay, you ready? Okay, here we go. Best science fiction movie. Best science fiction movie. Um, Close Encounters of Third Kind. Ooh, favorite local food. <laughs> okay. Oh, nice. Okay, best place in Hawaii to clear your mind. Best place in Hawaii to clear my mind. I would have to say that my very favorite place is about halfway up Mauna Loa. Okay, favorite thing to teach? Oh my gosh. Anything with food. Mmm. Okay, and last one. Something on your bucket list. Oh, I don't have a bucket list because I've done it all. <laughs> Whoa! Actually, actually, there was one thing on my bucket list, but um, we had to take it off my bucket list because my wife said that it would be cruel and unusual punishment for my kids. We, I had all my paperwork together to, to do the teacher in space. And when the Columbia did not return, we were driving over to some friend's house and my son said, Whoa, dad, they're not coming back, huh? I said, no. He said, I played with their kids. I said, I know you did. And my wife, when I got home, she said, you're not doing that. I'm like, but it would be so cool. Yeah. <laughs> so that, so, so I really don't have a bucket list. Yeah, that one was stricken off the bucket yeah, list. Makes sense yeah, though. Yeah. Thanks for playing the rapid fire round. Um, one last question before we go. Sure. What does the future of science education look like? 30 years from now, 40 years from now, what does science education look like? I think science education is going to look completely different. I think that what we're going to be doing, um, sadly, is a lot more virtual. There is something about, you know, seeing 
and somebody's eyes and light up. I just can't get that when I'm looking through Zoom. I think what's going to happen is that we're going to have a renaissance, much like we had with Sputnik, focusing on what we as a society can do to have less impact on the planet and utilize what limited resources we have in a much more sustainable and efficient way. And so it's going to become, I believe, more focused on the scientific processes. We're going to become more focused on uh, narrower fields that are going to have wider implications, not on a bunch of wide field that has narrow implications. It is good science that's going to you know, take care of things like the next pandemic and solving problems for space travel. And we are going to see, I hope, a generation of students coming out of Hawaii, much like uh, our recent Nobel laureate that is from Hilo High School, working with CRISPR. What an amazing story. A product of the public schools in Hawaii getting a Nobel Prize. I think this is fantastic. I think that it bodes well for science education. Science is for everyone. Science is not just for grumpy old white guys like me. (laughs) I love it. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, man. Bye. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye.